Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Great, thank you, Tom, and morning, everyone. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to be here again um, in this new venue, which is very beautiful. I've already taken a photo of the ceiling. Uh, Very lovely. Right, now I think I've got my recording on, so we're all good. Um, Yes, so, as Tom says, this morning we are uh, in... The very first part of Acts, just the first eight chapters of Acts, we're going to look at, and then uh, the second uh, session, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. They go nicely together, obviously. It'd be helpful if you've got a Bible with you to have it open at Acts. Um, it'd be nice just to be able to look and refer to some of the things that we're going to talk about. You could easily spend one of these mornings actually not even looking at your Bible, slightly ironically, couldn't you? Uh, Just listening to me talk. So it's nice to have the Bible in front of you and check out what I'm saying. Um, and And as the biblical material is relatively short for this session, unlike some of the other things you do, it's just eight chapters. We're actually going to go through eight chapters. We're actually going to work through the narrative because it is narrative. You know, it's a telling a story of something that happened so we're going to work through it like that and try and get through the eight chapters uh, together so that's the plan Uh, and uh, the book of Acts I I sort of think of it like this you think well what does the book of Acts do in the New Testament uh, in in, in the whole of the New Testament it's almost like a a pivot or a fulcrum of events act so you've already done the Gospels uh, presumably, uh, in the last couple of months. And, and what you've got there, of course, is the story of, of what happened and Jesus came and the story of his life and his passion. And then the rest of the New Testament is, all, is mostly letters, um, obviously the apocalyptic at the end as well, but mostly letters about the, ch- the church, the growth and the outworking of the church following the results and the events of the Gospels. And Acts, if you like, it acts a bit like a pivot. It joins the two together. So um, almost like you take this, something needs to happen to get to this. Um, You take this, this is one of my favourite things, and something needs to happen to get to this. Um, And when it comes to Acts, the analogy is not perfect. Don't interrogate it too deeply. Uh, To get from this to this, something had to happen. Uh, and the Acts of the Apostles kind of tells us that bit of the story, if you like. Okay, so getting into it, we, we know, I'm sure, that Luke wrote the uh, Acts of the Apostles. He, we also know, was a travelling companion of the Apostle Paul, um, a doctor, we read, uh, and of course the writer of the third gospel, the same Luke. So Luke Acts are a body of work by the same person. Uh, dates m- mostly um, thought probably early 60s dates are important some people are really interested in this kind of thing and some people don't you know whatever but dates are important because when you look at historical literature very often there's a chronological distance there's a huge distance between events and then somebody writing about those events and often in even greater distance then from any copies of the writings that we've found or that we have. And so 
these, these events were written about very quickly, very soon after they've occurred, and actually um, manuscripts exist from, from relatively close as well, sort of in the 300s um, AD. So, as I said, have your Bible open uh, to see how we got from 120 followers in a, in a room together, a little bit afraid, to what we have today, which I believe is around about 2.4 billion Christians in the world, the latest uh, stats suggest. And we're going to see how that started, and hopefully then the exciting thing about that is it's still going on. <laughs> that process is still going on. Some of these things will be in your notes. So Luke says, uh, he starts off Acts by saying it's part two of his account. As I've said, he wrote the gospel. And, and interestingly, right at the start, you'll see he says, um, I wrote in the first book, in the first letter in Luke, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So the implication being that we're about to find out how Jesus continued to do things and teach things, despite the fact that he's no longer with them on the earth. And then uh, Luke just explains there's been 40 days since the resurrection. He's recapitulating a bit. He's going over a bit of the material at the end of his gospel because we actually, at the end of the gospel, he talks about the ascension. So here he's gone back and is explaining a bit more about it. And he recounts that Jesus' instruction that the disciples are to wait. They're not to do anything yet. They need to wait because something is going to happen. They, they get a little bit um, distracted, as they often do, and ask him about the, you know, the restoration of the kingdom and you know, a political question, really. And he says, don't worry about that. You don't need to know about times of when things are going to change. They don't really understand, as always, uh, you know, the nature of what he's doing. But then we get this. So in Acts 1, verse 8, we get this. Uh, oh, it's at the bottom of that slide. The key verse uh, in chapter 1, Jesus says to them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what we see in that verse, as you can see from the quote here, it says, This verse contains an inspired outline of the book of Acts. Uh, <coughs> note that it refers to persons, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, a power and a program, this ever-expanding witness. And Luke proceeds then to record the fulfilment of this prediction. By the end of this book, the gospel and the church have reached as far as Rome, from, from the starting point of Jerusalem. And of course, the key thing about Rome is that it's the centre of the world at that point, or the, certainly the centre of a large part of it, the Roman Empire, and from that place the Gospel is sort of pumped out to, uh, starts to be pumped out to the ends of the earth. So in Acts 1.8, right at the beginning of the book there, you've got this pattern, if you like, for what then Luke does when he explains then what happens as the church is born. Uh, this is exactly what we see. Jerusalem first, Judea, Samaria, and then the beginning of those ripples going out to the ends of the earth. So, um, as you can see, uh, the Spirit comes, you receive power and be witnesses, then we see the Jerusalem, uh, the impact in Jerusalem, then we start to see the impact in the rest of Judea and Samaria, and then we start to see the movement out to the ends of the earth. That's how Acts goes. Acts 1 verse 8 provides a little pattern, if you like, a little scheme for what's going to happen in the rest. 
Today we're only going as far as chapter 8. Um, you'll have to wait for the rest. Uh, what, what happens? Does anybody, has anybody got a thought? What happens at the end of chapter 8 or in chapter 9 that actually changes the... There's a real step change in the programme of the expanse of the gospel. So we're doing 1 to 8 and then from 9 something really significant happens. Anybody know what it is? Would that be so the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, absolutely, is then the thing, the apostle to the Gentiles, as he's appointed and meets Christ on the road, uh, has this extraordinary revelation. And then, of course, we see, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a big step in the programme, if you like, of the gospel. So, Okay. So we read about the... Uh, before we get to you'll, you'll receive power when you receive the Spirit, which happens in chapter 2, what we read about in chapter 1 is the ascension as well. Jesus ascends to heaven. I don't know about you, and I know people are from different churches and possibly you know, different church traditions here. In my church tradition, certainly, which and I'm, I come from a church in London which is part of the same family of churches as Christ Church Manchester, um, we, we don't... I've not heard a lot of teaching on the Ascension and it's a part of the church calendar, date in the church calendar that we don't really acknowledge very much in my experience and we don't even really talk about it. And so this became clear to me when a few years ago I was meeting with a young lady who'd recently come to faith and I was explaining to her certain key elements of the gospel message and her newfound faith. And um, one day she said to me, so Jesus died, but he came back from the dead. So, but then presumably he died again one day. And uh, I said, oh, no, 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 this is really quite vital. that He is still alive. Um, I mean, apart from anything, you know, because he's the eternal son of God. But um, no, unlike Lazarus, who came out of the grave, but one day died again. Jesus didn't die again. He ascended and he, uh, it's an important part of the... Christ event really we talk very often we talk shorthand you know the death resurrection or the life death and resurrection of Christ and we should definitely add the ascension on the end because he didn't die again he ascended and he lives there's a man in heaven who's our big brother and our high priest and it's a wonderful doctrine that sometimes we forget uh, so anyway we read there he ascended and then we read about the uh, replacement of Judas Iscariot with Matthias he gets the job that's chapter one, pretty much. Uh, chapter two is the one where this whole uh, Holy Spirit coming, what Jesus has, uh, has predicted, really starts to kick off. And we read in, uh, right at the beginning of chapter two, it says they were all together. I reckon they spent quite a lot of time all together in the aftermath of what's happened to Jesus and to them. Um, don't you? I think there'd be quite a lot of being together. And, but they're together, and they're together partly because uh, there's a big festival on. So we read, it's Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost means, means 50th, uh, and it's basically 50 days since Passover. That's the, the festival. It's almost like, a, it's also called the Feast of Weeks, and it's almost like a big festival harvest celebration going on in the city. So the city's rammed with people, Jews come from all over the place, not just Jerusalem, and they're all there. And there's disciples are in a room, we read. And I there's definitely, for me, there's some echoes of that, uh, the eve of Christ's passion, 
the disciples in a room together, uh, you know, at the Last Supper. And here they are together in a room, at the, if you like, on the eve or at the dawn of this new spirit-filled church that's about to kick off. And, uh, and we read in very few verses, actually, this extraordinary event, <laughs> very few verses, uh, that there's this mighty rushing wind comes in. And the wind should remind us of some other times we've seen wind in the Bible when God is involved. So, do you remember the Red Sea parting? That was parted by an incredible wind, a rushing wind parted the sea, a sign of God at work. Uh, Of course, the, the, the word for spirit, which is very helpful to remember, and it will come up again and again actually this morning, is the same word for wind or breath. Um, in the Hebrew it's ruach and in the Greek it's pneuma but it's, it, that's the word um, the, the wind of God, the breath of God, the spirit of God and the, we read that it filled the house we'll also read the spirit filled them, the believers and again we've got to think okay, what, what does the spirit, the breath of God fill in the Old Testament it's the tabernacle and the temple that's where he shows up One of the other manifestations of the Spirit here is tongues of fire appearing over people's heads. Anybody ever seen that? I've never seen that. I've heard some people who've seen it, but I've never... Have you seen it, sir? Yeah, wow. Tongues of fire. But again, fire, when, you know, we're supposed to think, ah, in the Old Testament, the the pillar of fire, the fire on the mountain, God, symbols showing up of God. And then, and then crucially, one of the, the outworkings of this extraordinary experience that these people are having is they start speaking in other languages we read. Um, not just, um, there's some people here who speak other languages, but not just because they've learned other languages from other places, although they are, many, but because we read as God gives them the power to do so, as the Spirit comes on them. And, as we'll discover, as we hear, they are earthly languages. They're languages that people listening understand. Because as we, as we read on, we find that uh, people hear, like, how come these guys are speaking in our languages and we can hear them telling of the wonders of God in languages that we understand. So they're earthly languages given by the Spirit. So that's what happened. A little bit of uh, just... Some of the things I've already mentioned very quickly. So they were filled. You may have heard this idea before. The church is the eschatological temple. So the people of God become the end times, the church era. When I say end times, I mean this this chunk of time between Jesus' coming and Jesus' return. Uh, the, The church, the people of God, become the place where God lives in the in the the theme of temple traces all through the Bible, right from the Garden of Eden, that, that first temple where God and humanity met. That's what happens in a temple space all the way through the Bible. And what we see now is the Spirit of God, the glory of God fills actual human beings. Which, doesn't, if it doesn't excite you, it should. <laughs> it's extraordinary. And they spoke with other languages, and so again there's a symbol here uh, of what? Of all nations and peoples now being reached with the good news. So... Uh, it's a, you might see here, and I do see here, as a kind of reversal of what happened in Genesis in, at Babel. 
where there's a, um, an effort by humans to conserve and to, to, to um, squash people's identity into one, to stop the spreading and stop the development of languages. Um, many people would say there's actually a, an impulse at Babel to, to bring other nations and, sub, and subdue them and subject them and, and make them conform rather than God's plan that there'd be um, great fruitfulness and filling across the earth. But here we see a kind of reversal of that. Uh, many languages being heard, a sign that many nations will be reached. They receive power. Jesus said in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 18, you receive power to be my witnesses. And it seems that the power which results, as we'll see in, in the book of Acts, in signs and wonders and all sorts of miraculous happenings, is for the purpose of witnessing to the truth of the gospel. Which then in turn, of course, results in mass conversions, as we'll see. And there's a new age, what we, what we might call the age of the spirit, but certainly the church is born. You remember the prophecy in the, uh, the minor prophet Joel, about the, God says, I pour my spirit out on all types of people. All types of people are going to receive my spirit um, and be fruitful as a result. And crucially, a new community is born. A new, as we'll see, this is a key part of the early uh, chapters of Acts. We read a lot about them being together, about community. A new community is born. All nations then are going to be incorporated into, I've lost my projector, into the uh, family of God, not just, oh, there we go. And this is really central. It's central to the gospel message. It's central when you read Paul's letters. Um, the, the new, uh, you know that, that phrase that Paul used, a new humanity one in Christ, that, that bringing together of all sorts of people is a core aspect of the gospel message. If it's not core to our gospel message, we should address it. It should be. And this is a little table for those that like this sort of thing, sort of biblical themes, seeing patterns. Um, at Sinai, in uh, Exodus 19, we read about, you know, when Moses goes up the mountain, uh, seven weeks after Passover, that was... Uh, after the Passover, when they've come out of Egypt, um, Moses goes up the mountain, God's presence descends, he sends fire, there's noise from heaven, and then the giving of the law, which is the thing that defines God's people, that sets them apart, that shows that they belong to him. And the tabernacle is, is given, you know, the instructions for the tabernacle, the place where God is going to live among his people. And here at Pentecost we see a very similar pattern. It's seven weeks, as I say, after the cross. Jesus ascends. God's presence descends, if you like. So as, as Jesus said, when I go, he said in John's Gospel we read, don't we? When I go, I'll send my spirit. Uh, his presence descends. There's tongues of fire. There's a noise from heaven. The gift that now defines God's people, us, is given, which is the spirit. Uh, and the dwelling place of God becomes the church of Jesus Christ. I love that sort of thing. Do you like that sort of thing? I find it so exciting. You're like, oh, God, you knew what you were doing all along. <clears throat> and as I mentioned as well, kind of reversal of Babel. I think that's really a temp really um, interesting you know right from the beginning of the bible god says doesn't he go fill the earth be fruitful go and uh and what we find at 
very soon in, in Genesis 10 and 11 we hear, hear about the table of nations all the many many nations and peoples and then this effort at Babel to kind of bring them back together and say no 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 we're going to we want this we want to almost an attempt at homogeneity rather than celebrating uh, you know the, the diversity and all the sort of heterogeneous nations um, and here we see languages given in order to prophetically show actually that no 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 the people of God are not just going to be one one ethnic group they're going to be across the whole world okay and then so after this extraordinary experience I don't know what and the thing when you read the Bible is of course there's lots of bits missing so I don't know you, you know you sometimes you read it and you're like gosh these things just happen one after the other like almost all on the same day maybe maybe they did maybe there's there's more going on maybe somebody popped home for a shower in between I don't know but um, but what happens right on the back of this experience is Peter gets up and uh, announces the gospel message in the most extraordinary way. Uh, he, he goes through steps, you know, explains to people step by step um, what's going on. He talks about the life and passion of Christ. He points people and says, you know, we know that from David there's a, there's a hope coming. Something is coming. That's, our hope is in David. But David's clearly not the answer. Christ is the one, look, Christ is the one who fulfills all the promises. He draws people's attention to the ascension. says, we've seen that, we're witnesses of that. And to the, the, the promised spirit, which now these people are seeing. So, so out of all of those, taking them through all these steps, he says, don't you see that Jesus is Lord? Some of, the, some of these uh, sermons, or... I mean, he wouldn't have called them sermons, I'm sure, but some of these speeches that Peter gives in this, in the early parts of this book, I think can be quite helpful when we, when we think about how we explain the good news of Jesus to people. It's like, well, is it a, are there logical steps? See, see, I think the Christian faith is a reasonable faith. It's not, it is faith, but it's reasonable. Uh, and there, there are ways, like Peter does, to explain to people why this is a reasonable faith. And I think looking at some of these, the way he does that can be quite instructive. It wouldn't be the same, because we wouldn't necessarily be talking to a group of, of ethnic Jews very often. But, but there are logical steps to say, no, 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 everything points to the fact that this is, he is the answer. He is who he said he was. And the response that... Um, when people hear this and they say, well, okay, so what are we supposed to do? The response that they get is, um, you have to repent and be baptised. And then God will give you his spirit and um, forgive you your sins. And again, I wonder, if somebody would say to me, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Or how do I become a Christian? It's a very simple formula from Peter's uh, point of view. Repent and be baptised. Uh, and again, it makes me... These are questions whenever we're reading the Bible. I don't know about you, but they just precipitate lots of questions. Um, and so we might ask ourselves, you know, is, is baptism in water an essential part of faith in Christ? Is that an essential part of the formula? I'm not asking you for answers necessarily, but um, interesting to think about. Um, he says, if you repent and be baptised, you'll receive the Spirit. Um, God will give you his spirit as, as part of the formula you know what I mean, formula is not a great word but you know what I mean, that's part of the process this is what's going to happen uh, we'll talk later about what our, all our sort of theology might be on when people receive the spirit as we might call it, or are filled with the spirit but, but this is what Peter says 
Um, and it was pretty, he was pretty successful with this sermon. Um, I know we have this conversation sometimes about people being, when do you baptise people? Do you, do you, somebody's expressed faith in Christ, they, they've seemed to have repented and as far as they understand it, um, then we baptise them. It seems, that, it seems that the church here, or not yet really the church, baptised 3,000 people that day. So they weren't really waiting to make sure it was a genuine or waiting for what we might call fruit of repentance or something. I'm not, I'm not knocking that because sometimes that's the wise thing to do. But it just should make us ask these questions uh, and you know, make sure that we're... If we have a theology that says, oh no, we baptise adults and, or believers because that's the biblical model. Well, the biblical model seems to be that um, we don't you know, wait six months to make sure that it's real. But sometimes that's probably not a bad thing to do. Um, and chapter 2 ends with a description of this new spirit-filled community. Uh, Who has ever heard a sermon on this new community in Acts 2 and how they lived and, uh, and as a pattern for how we should live as a church? Anyway, I mean, I've heard multiple. Yeah. Um, interesting. So, the new community is born. Something radical has changed overnight here uh, from this group of people who are unsure what to do. Jesus has risen, it's marvellous, but now he's gone again. We don't know what to do, we're waiting. And then something radical has happened. And what you get is this new community is born, really. And, um, and these are some of the things that we read about it. They're devoted, quite a strong word about our devotion, we think about our devotion, they're devoted to teaching, to, to, to listening and taking on board and the, the apostles' teaching. They're devoted to one another. Um, they're devoted to breaking bread, to prayer. I'll put reverential fear, that's not really devoted, but I just like the fact that the two columns are the equal length. If <laughs> so, devoted to reverential fear. Or filled with awe, it says, but... Um, but then marks of that church then, what are the signs of, of what characterises this new community? Are signs and wonders, so the power, we'll see. Sharing everything, that obviously goes with devoted to one another. There's this incredible um, <clears throat> generosity among them, which we'll see. They're joyful and thankful. They, they experience favour of the people around them. That's one of the marks of this new community. And they see daily conversions. That's a pretty good mark. Just to say, just again, a question for you. Devoted to, let me find it. Devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, I think because of language and probably because of churchiness, I don't know about you, but when we hear breaking of bread, we're probably thinking about something like the Lord's Supper. Um, there's, there's no suggestion that that's what that's about. Um, I, I wonder if it just means they ate together a lot. You know, that's the new family, the new church family. They're, they're break, breaking bread is, a, is just a, um, a synecdoche, a, a, a um, euphemism or a, you know, an expression that means they, they ate. They broke bread together, they ate together. Um, I don't know. There might be more to it than that, but um, you see that there's something so uh, powerful about this new, newly born community. 
And so once that, you know, once we've read about that, and there really is a lot packed into one chapter, Acts chapter 2, there really is, in terms of the history, yeah. Can I just ask what you mean by favourable? Yeah, well, it, that's what it says. Um, doesn't it? Let's find it. Praising God. So verse 47 of chapter 2. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. We read a little bit later on that people are so, uh, I don't know, in awe of what they see that they don't want, any, they don't want to join. We read that actually a little bit later. So that's interesting. So I, I don't know about you, I've certainly experienced that to a degree. So I was just talking to someone this morning actually about how in our church in London we seem to have gained the favour of some other people in our community then, and they don't want to join us. They don't want, you know, they're not Christians and they don't necessarily want to endorse all that we think and do but we've got their favour. So like the council for example, we've managed to win quite a lot of funding from them for various reasons because they like what we do with it and they think we, we're trustworthy with it. I think they're particularly in our youth department that's been proved and so we've got quite a bit of favour I'd say with some people um, because they see what we're doing in the community and they want to support that but they, yeah. Yeah I guess so, I mean that's, they enjoyed the favour of all the people, I think so. You know what it's like to be in favour with someone I think that's, I don't know what the original word is and what the kind of range, semantic range is of that word off the top of my head, but yeah, it's positive. They've got, a, you know, what's happening at this point, it changes, <laughs> it changes later, but at this point it seems to be a positive thing. They've got favour with people. Okay, let's quickly um, run through chapter three before we have a little uh, break. So the campaign begins, like I said, in Acts 1.8. We've got this scheme, this pattern. Jesus says it's going to go like this, 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 and this. Well, that's the way Luke portrays it. And so we start in chapter 3, the campaign starts. We're in Jerusalem. Luke starts to tell us about what happens in Jerusalem. And if you like, we start with, um, what I put in your notes, the hoi polloi, which is just a word I quite like. But it's actually a Greek word that just means the many. But we use it to mean just like the masses, you know, the, the people. Um, so we read about, just out in the streets, among ordinary people, the campaign begins of the spreading of the gospel. And there's a healing miracle, you know, on the, um, Peter and John are on the way to the temple, remember, and there's a beggar, and he's asking for money. He's, like, he's asking for help, and he gets more than he bargains for, because he really gets some help that he wasn't expecting, and he gets he supernaturally healed um, after 40 years of being unable to work or look after himself he gets more than he bargained for and I love that very familiar phrase that you know the apostles say to him they say well we haven't got any money but we've got something a lot better than that in the name of Jesus of Nazareth get up and so unsurprisingly on the back of this miraculous occurrence Peter takes the opportunity again to stand up and explain to people what's going on what's happened and again I mean He's very bold. Do you remember Peter just a few weeks ago? <laughs> Wasn't very bold, was he? You know, it's the same guy. It's extraordinary. It's one of the most extraordinary stories or biographies, if you like, in the Bible, I think. The transformation of Peter. 
um, once he's filled with the Spirit. I, um, it should provoke us and uh, makes provokes me for sure. It makes me ask questions of my life. But he gets up and he does his thing and he's so bold because he says to the Jews, you know, you killed him. He was God's servant that you killed. He's so bold. But again, what I like about this is he goes through these logical steps. He doesn't just stand up and say, um, you know, your life is pointless uh, without Jesus. You can know forgiveness and peace today, which is great and all true for us. That's some of the, sometimes the way we describe and explain the gospel. But, but actually he goes through these steps. It's like, no, you... You want God to bring restoration just like we do. These are Jews who've got an expectation. And God has always promised this, but if only you can see it. And he takes them through these steps to explain why Jesus is the answer. And again, very, very Christocentric, very much pointing to Jesus all the time as he explains what's going on. It's almost like the miracle is there, but that's not really the focus. The miracle is something that enables us, uh, us to point to, the, to Christ as the centre and as the, uh, the author of all of that. Um, so, we go from, the, as I say, the masses in Jerusalem. We're still in Jerusalem, the campaign's still in the centre. But in chapter 4, what we see is, is Jerusalem again. I don't know if you ever think about this, but the way some of the biblical writers, well, all of them actually, write, is so... It's, it's not ad hoc, you know, it's very, it's very purposeful, well-crafted. Luke is taking us on a journey carefully here through these steps of the gospel expansion. So we're still in Jerusalem, but we move to the kind of corridors of power. And again, we can't fail to notice how Peter is just transformed. Absolutely transformed. Um, you know, they're chucked into prison over and over again. They just don't care. Peter and John are arrested while they're speaking. Clearly they're, some, they're a threat uh, to the Jewish leaders. And uh, marvellously, of course, they're miraculously released by an angel, which is, again, such a cool thing to happen. Um, I, well, we'll get to that in a minute. It's just so provoking to me, the attitude of these guys. But even then, even though they've been imprisoned... What does my slide say? Oh, yeah. So we read again, it, it, when Peter starts speaking, he says uh, in verse 8 of chapter 4, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them. So again, there's, there's always this sense that as the Spirit has come on Peter, as he's full of this new revelation and experience of God, he's, uh, he's changed. The way he reacts to things, the way he responds to things, utterly changed. He gets up and he tells them again. I mean, these guys are um, the people who have the power of life and death. Uh, to some extent over, over the apostles you know people who have colluded in the execution of Christ uh, and Peter's just telling them like it is we must obey God rather than people he says God raised up Jesus whom you killed and then we get this chap step into the story called Gamaliel um, and uh, he's an interesting one because he's a senior Jew. He's part of the Sanhedrin, so he's a powerful guy. Um, and there's all sorts of writings, actually, about how powerful he was and who he was related to. But um, he's clearly a very influential, powerful guy in the Sanhedrin. But he gives very wise counsel to the Jewish leaders and says, um, 
he says this, so in this case I say to you, so he's talking about various other so-called you know, Messiah pretenders or rabbis, leaders, um, charismatic people who sort of rise up and, and gain a following. But comparing Jesus, he says, well, I suggest you stay away from these men, leave them alone. If this plan uh, originates with people, it will come to nothing. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop them. Or you may even be found fighting against God. And again, and there's a little nutshell there, a little bit of, uh, of the, the whole story, if you like, of what Luke's trying to tell us. Just an interesting... Um, this is interesting to me. That phrase, you may be found fighting against God, is actually a phrase that's found in a Greek, uh, in Greek writing from Euripides at the time. Found fighting against God. And so it's quite possible, just like we would often you know, use allusions to, to things that everybody's familiar with or quote things. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of Lord of the Rings allusions in sermons. But that sort of thing, you know, something that in the general knowledge is, is most people know what you're talking about is helpful well found fighting against God may be a reference to a phrase from um, the Greek tragedian Euripides um, because all of these guys would speak Greek that's the that's the the, the the language of the time and in many of the anthologies of Greek writing that they will have learned from Euripides would be a big um, a feature and there's a story where um, actually um, there's a, a god miraculously releases his followers from prison um, and then somebody who opposes that god was ultimately destroyed so there in a way you say oh well there's a little a nice little sermon illustration <laughs> for you anyway i find that quite interesting uh, maybe that's the illusion that Gamaliel's using which all of his hearers instantly got and they're thinking okay yeah we can see that and Gamaliel says I suggest you leave them alone but as they are as they are released from prison the, the apostles again they go back to their people and um, they pray <laughs> which I think is a great response if, you've, if you're being arrested and put in prison. They, they go back and they explain what's happened to the, their people and they pray. It says, um, chapter 4 from verse 23, after they were released, they went to their own people, reported everything the chief priests and elders have said, and they raised their voices together to God and prayed. And this is one of the things that, I love this prayer. This is part of it. They pray this. Um, for indeed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, assembled together in this city against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do as much as your power and your plan had decided beforehand would happen. This is huge revelation, actually, isn't it? I think in the in the a few weeks ago, they weren't necessarily seeing this, but now what Peter is saying is like, well, this has happened. The Romans. Uh, the Jewish leaders have assembled together to attack Jesus, you know, to, to execute our saviour, our teacher, our Lord. But actually we recognise that only because you allowed it to happen, God, only because in your sovereign will, that was always your plan. They have such confidence in the sovereign plan of God at this point, so much so that they're just going to keep going and end up in prison again and again. 
Now, Lord, it says, pay attention to their threats and grant to your servants to speak your message with great courage. You notice, not now, Lord, pay attention to their threats and somehow remove them from power. Somehow, please protect us. Uh, I think it's time we laid low for a bit. Um, you know, we don't, you know, we've got responsibilities and families and we, no, it's like, pay attention to their threats and give us more boldness. Give us courage. Uh, while you extend your hand to heal, to bring miracle, while, while you do your bit, Lord, and work wonders, give us courage. Do you don't you find that extraordinary? I find that great, hugely provoking. And I'm not saying that if, um, if I ended up in prison for my faith and was released, that I wouldn't make the decision to lay low for a bit. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm by no means. Uh, but I just find reading this should always provoke us and make us think, wow. What God uh, has done in this, this little beleaguered community of people by the sending of the Spirit is radical, transforming. And they're so confident in the providence of God. So confident. Not their safety is their concern, but the providence of God. Okay, it's quarter to ten. Um, do you need a little break? Shall we have a, what is it, Tom, ten minutes? Ten minute break, grab a... So now it's not nine o'clock, you can without any kind of conscience you can eat those sweet things over there <laughs> of which there are many I grab a coffee go to the loo and we'll be back in 10 minutes okay we're going to move on through our journey uh, through the first eight chapters of Acts so it's all pretty exciting isn't it it's all pretty exciting uh, the spirit has made We've only really seen the apostles in action, but you know we're assuming because it happened to the whole uh, group of believers that that's what's going on. They've made they've been made witnesses, like Jesus said, in a whole new way, um, and it's pretty exciting. And they seem to have this incredible confidence um, and resilience, actually. So all is so well. It's amazing times. But we're going to move into chapter five, where unsurprisingly things take a bit of a dip where we've already seen some opposition obviously the apostles being locked up but there's more opposition there's more threat i suppose you'd say to what's going on with this new spirit-filled spirit-born church and chapter five we read at the end of chapter four that there's this um, beautiful thing going on of, of generosity amongst themselves no one has need uh, which by the way was always the way god's people were meant to be you read in deuteronomy 15, there should be no poor among you, God says. It's always, the temple's always meant to provide for the poor, the widow, the orphan among you. But, it, but anyway, what we see here is this extraordinary um, liberality with, with resources. Uh, at the end of chapter 4, we even read that Barnabas uh, sells a field and, and gives the money to the church, brings it to the apostles. So we start chapter 5 uh, with a story. Um, Extraordinary story, actually, of Ananias and Sapphira. If you're familiar with it, the, the, or if you're not familiar with it, the story is that, uh, like Barnabas and seemingly others, this couple sell some property, and they bring the money, they bring the proceeds to Peter and say, here, we've sold a, a property and we brought the money, like others are doing. And Peter discerns or knows somehow that they've not brought all of the money, uh, they brought some of it and kept some back and 
he says this to Ananias, who brings the gift. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after, it sold, after you sold it, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you've planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he dropped down dead. And unsurprisingly, we read, um, great fear came on all who heard. Uh, young men got up, wrapped him up, took him out and buried him. Gosh. But then, of course, his wife comes in. And Peter says to her, Sapphira, is this the money that you sold the property for? And she said, yeah, that's the amount. And he says, why have you lied? Why have you cooked this thing up? The people who took your husband away and buried them are going to do the same for you. And she drops down dead as well. This is a, this is narrative. This is a this is a journey Luke's taking us through of what's happening to this church. I want you to think about in your churches. Thank the Lord, this doesn't is not happening in our churches. But imagine there's this huge excitement, this wave of success, really, you know, of growth, of conversion. I mean, apart from anything else, of new revelation, you know, about what's going on, about what God is up to in the world. It's so exciting, it's so thrilling. Um, and then this happens, which I can only imagine. If you, are, if you have any kind of church leadership responsibility here, imagine dealing with this one. Imagine explaining this to your people. Imagine contextualizing this in a way that doesn't just completely shipwreck your mission. You know? Because it doesn't. Uh, anyway, so... Um, so if you like, there's a kind of opposition or there's a threat, there's something happens inside the church which is terribly distressing. Um, and F.F. Bruce writes this about this event, the, the great Bible commentator. He says, the story of Ananias is to the book of Acts, what the story of Achan is to the book of Joshua. In both narratives, an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. Without looking it up, does anybody know what that's about, that Achan? Does anybody remember that story? Um, Lady at the back. Uh, Joshua, um, tore down, he tore down his father's idols, and um, the next day people wanted to kill him. But um, when things were taken away, I kind of stole um, a cloak and some gold and things right. like that. He did. Okay, and he did. Yeah, absolutely. So what happened was there was a, a battle, and uh, they should have won it easily. But they didn't, and Joshua realised something's amiss. This is the Battle of A, A, spelled A-I. People call it A-I, but I'm sure that's not how you pronounce it, I don't know. Any Hebrew scholars in the room? Um, there's a battle, um, uh, they should easily have won, and they didn't. And so it becomes clear to Joshua something's amiss. And what it is, is that Achan or Achan has disobeyed God and taken some of the stuff, the loot, for himself. And he confesses... Um, and Joshua says this, Why have you brought disaster on us? The Lord will bring disaster on you today. And all Israel stoned him to death and his family. And so in Acts 5, we read a very similar thing. How have you thought up this deed in your heart? You have not lied to people but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he collapsed and died. Great, great fear came on all who heard about it. Um, in your notes, there's a great quote from... Uh, Phil Moore. I think it's in your notes. Good. Uh, 
I'm trying to see it in mine. Oh, here we go. Fillmore, in his commentary, uh, he writes a commentary series called Straight to the Heart. Very accessible, very helpful, easy little paperback books on, on different books of the Bible. He says this, The advance of the church is firmly linked to her pure and attractive witness to the person of Jesus Christ. If Satan soils and corrupts her under a veneer of discipleship, it is game over for the church. Like a surgeon dealing with a cancerous melanoma, God gets out his scalpel and operates fast. Soon Ananias and Sapphira are lying dead on the floor of his surgery, but the body of Christ has been spared. That's the way he processes that particular event. Just quickly, with the person next to you, answer this question. Do you find it... Do you find it harder to come to terms with the Ananias and Sapphira episode than the Old Testament Joshua Ekan episode? Or yes or no, and if so, why or why not? Just quickly, with your next door neighbour, have a little chat about that. Right, okay, let's, um, let's bring it back. It's always dangerous, I know, to let you go, but let's bring it back. Um, yeah, there's some tough things, aren't there, in the Bible? Uh, just to say, sorry, I completely messed up my notes earlier and brought Gamaliel into the wrong chapter. Apologies for that. Doesn't mean we don't have to do it now, but um, I brought him in too early. I've, I, I was looking at the wrong page. Um, anyway, yes, that's that's pretty devastating thing, wasn't it, to occur in this so far pretty exciting narrative. Um, but it doesn't end because the rest of chapter 5 is also just about drama and, you know, and threat, but this time not from within, but from external sources. And again, we see uh, the apostles being picked up. In my, in my um, paper Bible here, I've actually got a little heading that just says, in and out of prison. <laughs> it's a great summary of these guys' life. I mean, I'm not sure I'd be quite so, you know, I don't know, flippant about it if it was me, but in and out of prison, that's just the way it is um, on trial again. Uh, and as I say, yeah, this is the bit which I mentioned earlier when I got my notes all, all in a tiz. So they carry on. I mean, the, the transformation of the apostles, as I've already referenced, is extraordinary. And I, I'd love you, every time we go back and read Acts again in the future, every time you, one of the great things about doing courses like this, actually, hopefully, is that, and anything else you do, actually, on biblical theology, is that every time you go back and read these sections of scripture again, some of these little things come back to you. Um, and, and again, one of the things that I always see now when I read this section of scripture um, is, is not to miss, actually, the transformation of particularly Peter, because he's the protagonist in much of this, isn't he? And it was just, you know, it's easy, like, oh, well, um, last year I read, you know, L L Luke's Gospel or Matthew or something, and then I read this, and then the now I'm reading Acts. And, and it's almost, you almost kind of separate the, them into different books, almost different you know, entities, whereas actually, of course, this is all happening just um, a very short time after the events that we read about of Peter denying Christ, of him essentially legging it whenever he got the opportunity. Um, and this guy is just totally transformed, totally changed. Uh, I relate sometimes more to the first iteration of, of Peter's Bible story and, uh, and, and occasionally to the second one and, you know, find it very provoking and 
obviously I think for all of us then, it's like what can we learn? What can we, what, how, what courage can we take from these guys? Courage and what's happened to them. Um, it really is extraordinary. So, so um, at the end of uh, chapter five, uh, we've got Gamaliel, the advice from, from Gamaliel and the Sanhedrin, like I mentioned. But um, again, you can really skip over these things. But after they called in the apostles, it says in verse 40, had them flogged. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus again and released them. What do they do? One, they rejoice because they've been worthy to bear reproach for the name of Jesus. They've been flogged. I don't need to go into the hideous nature of that. I'm sure you've all seen the films and stuff. But, but secondly, they just go right back to it. They just go right back to it. Every day in the temple and in homes, they continue teaching and proclaiming the good news. I'm very glad they did, because that's, you know, in the providence of God, that's why we're all sitting here today, isn't it? The gospel witness that begins here, uh, this point in the history of the world. And... Uh, yeah, they just keep going again. I find that so extraordinary. So in a way, you think, okay, great. So they've been through that. We've been through this awful event with Ananias and Sapphira, um, and we've and the apostles are through. I don't know, how, and I also don't know how we'd feel about our leaders being constantly taken and locked up. You know, it's they're the ones who are being um, arrested. Are they going to be executed? What's going to happen? What's going to happen to the rest of us? All of this is happening, but it. But the constant refrain, the constant refrain after all of it is they, is they go again. They keep preaching the gospel. They keep teaching. Uh, they keep just trusting God in his sovereignty for what is going to come. And so again, at the end of chapter 5, you think, okay, well, we're poised for things to carry on. We're poised for ongoing success. Um, as we see, it ends with gospel preaching all over the place. But then chapter 6, then, on the back of that, it starts with um, complaining. If you, yeah, I don't know. I've been going to churches since I was, I became a Christian when I was a a child, um, about 12 or 13 years old, and I've been going to churches ever since. So, I don't know about you, but I've seen a bit of this (laughs) complaining in churches. Um, And it's almost like, you know, the apostles are doing their thing, and... Um, there's great success and pe- daily conversions and yes there's loads of opposition but then they just keep going and preaching the gospel um, and then what we've got is that internally inside the church there's an issue there's a people issue there's some complaining and, and, and what we won't do is belittle that because we'll see it's a really important thing that happens an important thing that needs um, sorting out and, and what, we, what we find is there's a dispute, we read, between um, some of the widows. So there's a food program, the church are feeding people who don't have an income. And uh, as many of our churches probably do, um, run food banks and so on, and lunch clubs and sorts of things like that. But the, the church are feeding, there's a daily distribution, we read, of food for widows. But there's, um, there's a dispute. Some of them start complaining that they're not being treated fairly and so these are all these are all Jews but but some of them it's to do with the language they speak some of them are Hebrew speaking some of them are Greek speaking and there's an assertion that the Greek speaking ones are being overlooked uh, and so that it needs dealing with and what we read interestingly is the process is to get the church together to discuss it it's not just the apostles who sit in a room and decide what to do 
Um, they get the church together, they decide we need to get some people to look after this. It's, it's important, we're not going to gloss over it, but we need to not be distracted from uh, this getting arrested all the time and <laughs> going out and preaching the gospel, spreading the word. And, and So they choose, famously, seven deacons, as, they, as we call them, uh, as the English translation calls them, seven deacons to... to well, my translation, interestingly, says, um, uh, this translation here says, the apostles say, in verse 2, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word to wait on tables. Sounds like they're kind of disparaging the waiting on tables. I don't think that's a great translation, probably, than what some of your translations say. And that's probably just because in our language, it sounds like they're saying, oh, we can't, we're too important to... Clearly that's not what's going on because they take seven men, uh, men who we read are, you know, sort of uh, full of the spirit and wisdom. It says, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom. We want our best on this job, which is to make sure that we are doing our duty, if you like, this, this no one being in need, feeding the poor, and we're doing it well, and there's not, um, there's no grounds for this kind of accusation that we're overlooking certain people. Uh, the word that we get deacon from is basically a word that just means ministry or service. Uh, someone who ministers or serves. So it's actually the same, effectively it's the same word. The apostles are ministering in their, in their sweet spot and we need some other people to minister in this way. Uh, it's because it's a vital Ministry, And so there's two things, I think, that are really vital here. One is that <clears throat> right from the beginning, there's not just a kind of like, well, it's, it's all about the gospel message. It's all about people assenting to this understanding of, of the world, uh, of their life, and putting their faith in Jesus. Um, you know, as, as long as they understand that, it's fine because then they're saved and the church is growing and they're going to heaven. You know, that kind of, uh, that sort of gospel message. It's, no, it's like absolutely central, integral to what we're doing here is caring for people, feeding people. It's a vital part of the, um, uh, aren't they clever? I mean, Luke put this little bit in. He didn't put in everything, but he put this in because we need to know about it, because it's important, because this ministry of caring for the poor and feeding people is central to obviously what the church is doing right from the get-go. And of course the other thing is that if there's division, if there's, cult and here sort of cultural animosity has sprung up in the church, and that is, a, is, a, um, is bad news for the witness of the church. Uh, and, it, and it has been <laughs> throughout the church's history and uh, it's something that we should care deeply about uh, a divided community subverts the gospel and you know that awful phrase that somebody once said and I can't remember who it is so forgive me for that somebody will know uh, American observation that you know, 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning is the most um, segregated hour of the week um, and how tragic that is in the history of the church. Uh, but here, you know, r right at the beginning, as soon as there's an issue a kind of, of, of any sense of cultural animosity, of somebody not being treated the same, they are right on it and they appoint their best to sort it out. 
Um, and for those of us you know, in churches, that's a, that's a great thing to know when you read it in the future. Remember that, um, that God hates division in his church. Uh, and where we've and where some of us have you know been guilty of that or where some of you have experienced it of course the church has great responsibility to to put our best to work to heal those things and stop those things from being um, present in the church and and visible to other people outside in the church it's an absolute tragedy uh, when that's when that's happened so so we're introduced to uh, the seven and two of them are going to pop up again very soon. So Luke introduces to the whole seven in order then to tee up uh, the next two stories which we're going to look at in the next two chapters. And the first of those, of course, is Stephen. Uh, and Stephen's quite... I mean, Stephen's famous for being the first Christian martyr. Um, but he was, we read, don't we? I just love this as well. Of course, he was appointed to look after the widows, the distribution of food. He was a man full of the Holy Spirit. We read he's preaching the gospel with signs and wonders. So, he, hmm. so the apostles wanted to carry on preaching the word, so they put some other guys in charge of the food distribution. But here's a guy who's doing that job, but he's also preaching the gospel with signs and wonders. So he's not a one-trick pony. It also, I know we know this, but doesn't mean that, you know, you do this and I do this. Yeah, yeah, it, do you know what I mean? It's, uh, it's like, well, there, you know, nobody, he's got all that to take care of, but you do the food bank or you care about the poor. It's like, no, no, no. Um, as followers of Jesus, you know, we're, we're all called on to share the good news. Um, however you interpret the, the Great Commission, to preach the good news, to make disciples, to lay hands on the sick and, and so on. So Stephen's getting on with all of that. And, and actually he gets, uh, he comes up against opposition as a result of that. Um, and he's accused of blasphemy by the, um, by the Jewish rulers. Uh, actually he's accused of blasphemy by a smaller sort of group, a niche group of people, but then they sort of bring in, draw in everyone else who they think possibly object to what Stephen is doing. And it says they were unable to argue with him. So at the point that they can't, um, they can't win an argument or they can't actually, they can't gain ground with him, they, they draw in others to falsely witness against him, to accuse him falsely. Um, and marvellously, what Luke does here is he says, uh, so, so there, there's, the accusation is that Stephen is, is blasphemous because he's misteaching essentially on what the Old Testament, what the Jewish he, scriptures say about the law of Moses and the temple. But Luke marvellously gets that, this comment in there that he, his, they saw Stephen's face shining. So the illusion is there to Moses. It's like, actually, this guy is also a prophet of God. Um, and there's a connection there between him and Moses. Uh, just by, he doesn't say that, but he just says, you know, they saw his face shining. And I'm sure that's what he's trying to do. Uh, so Stephen's arrested. Um, Chapter 7 is, I mean, it's long, right? It's 52 verses of monologue. Um, I, when I, 
and I've done this before, I thought, well, maybe we should read the whole thing out together, but it really does take quite a long time. So I think I, I timed it, reading it quite slowly, it's five and a half minutes of... Um, but it's his defence, or it's the way Luke portrays the way Stephen defended himself. Um, we're not going to read it because it does take a long time. In fact, George Bernard Shaw apparently called Stephen a quite intolerable young speaker. <laughs> he didn't think much of the way that he did it. I think probably there's a big contrast between this and some of the speeches we've read of Peter. Uh, yeah, and he also called him a tactless and conceited bore. I'm not sure um, Yeah, George Bernard Shaw was really getting the point, but... Um, but what he does is he does this wonderful thing where he uses the accusations of his um, opposers, his opponents, and he turns it completely around. So it's like he puts them on trial and he shows how they're actually the ones who've misunderstood the point of the law and the temple. They've missed Christ, they've missed the Messiah, the anointed one who comes and makes sense of all of that. He turns it on its head. Um, go away and read it. I mean, basically he gives like a... It's almost um, a whistle-stop tour of the scriptures and of the story. Some of it's a little bit um, out of order, you know, in terms of, not out of order, but out of order of events. Um, but he explains what's happening, explains how the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. You know, he, he sticks one to the dispensationalists in a way, you know, he says... Um, this is how we understand now in the light of Christ the Old Testament scriptures um, and so and again uh, we should I don't know I think Stephen could well have stood up and probably wangled his way out of this tricky situation but instead of course he doesn't he does exactly what the other apostles we've seen or the apostles we've seen doing um, which is just owns it points to Christ again and of course, as a result, he's stoned to death the first Christian martyr. Now, Jews were not actually free just to decide to stone someone to death under Roman law. So you might call it a, a mob, a mob lynching, really. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't following any um, legal procedure. Uh, and then there's this beautiful picture of Christ standing to receive uh, Stephen. Stephen sees, doesn't he? He says, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand. And that's enough, of course, for the Jewish rulers to absolutely lose it because he says, I see the Son of Man in heaven. Her, you know, horror, horrendous idea. Um, and they do completely lose it. And of course, the one thing that happens right at the end of chapter 7, again, that Luke is just feeding us little tidbits, is we first meet Saul of Tarsus. He's there. Um, Marvellously, he's holding the coats, apparently. It's like when you have a football game, a kind of ad hoc football game. Someone has to hold the coats. Uh, they, the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's what he says. And we're like, oh, there, he's there watching, witnessing the murder of Stephen. And, uh, and then verse 8 begins, Saul agreed with putting him to death. So in a, very, in a few short verses, we're going to see a very different Saul, but that's where he comes in, that's where he's introduced now oh, spoiler something happens at the beginning of chapter 8 as a result of Stephen's stoning that takes us on the onto the next step in our scheme remember our ripples going out 
Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Uh, there are ripples going out from, from the centre. Something happens at the beginning of chapter 8, which actually we should say, oh, oh, there's a new step, there's a new thing that's happened. And as a result of Stephen being stoned to death, or certainly it, it seems as a result of the ferment that that throws up, it says, on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church. So you might think, what? Well, we've already seen persecution against the church. They keep locking the apostles up. They, you know, there's been all this um, animosity from the, from the ruling leaders. But clearly something else happens. There's a step change here. We go up a, a level and there's a severe persecution. So what happens as a result of persecution? All, except the apostles, were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. You're meant to go, oh, Acts 1 verse 8. From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and out to the ends of the earth. So what we've got is a scattering. Now, if you, if you, um, there's a guy in my, in the team where I work, in the church I work in, who is um, uh, an avid evangelist. I mean, that's kind of his point in the team. That's what he brings to the team. And uh, not that we're all, supposed, we're all supposed to be evangelists, but you know that, right? Uh, but he loves this verse because it's that it's the scattering you know it's a bit like some people you might have heard people talk about Sundays the gathering you know and then it's the scattering the believers scatter to your workplaces and your streets and your families and and take the gospel but I mean that's a, maybe that's a stretch but you, you it's a nice analogy you can use the analogy but but here because of persecution there's a great scattering but in verse 4 it says, those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Or as my friend Paul would like to say, chatting the gospel everywhere they go. They're scattered, but, they, but as they go, they go because they're being persecuted, they just don't stop chatting the gospel, preaching the word, telling people about Jesus. Man, that's a great opener to a conversation. It's like, oh, why are you new to the area? Well, we've just been booted out of Jerusalem because we're Christians. <laughs> if you want to start it to the conversation to talk about Jesus, there's one. So scattering means they go. Before we get to the scattering, we read that um, devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. That's the persecution. Ravaging the church. Entering house after house, dragging off men and women and banging them up in prison. That's what Saul is up to. Um, interestingly, apparently, the, the thing it says about loud... Uh, what have I, uh, it says loud lamentation in one of my song, one of my translations about devout men buried Stephen, mourned deeply over him. Um, it was, of course, actually against Jewish law to mourn over someone who'd been stoned to death because it was a cursed death. But um, obviously, <laughs> that's not what's going on in the new era of the church. You know, he's he's been martyred for faith in Jesus and he's mourned over. But then they just go, they're scattered. So I've got a little uh, slide. So the believers are scattered. Uh, there's witnessing with signs we read about in chapter 8. So again, remember our scheme from Acts 1.8. Witnesses, why is the Spirit coming? So that you'll be my witnesses in all of these places. So uh, Philip goes to um, Samaria. So one of the seven, remember, he's the other one from, we heard about in the list of the seven deacons appointed to look after the food distribution. Um, another one out preaching the gospel with signs. He goes down to Samaria, proclaimed the Messiah. Uh, they were listening and saw all the signs he was performing 
unclean spirits were coming out. Many who were paralysed and lame were healed. There's great joy in the city, we read. So that's all kicking off, witnessing with signs and wonders. Um, the Samaritans, we read, are filled with the Spirit. This, we're going to come back to this a little bit later in our session on the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Samaritans are filled with the Spirit. Actually, um, it's Peter and John who come down to, to lay hands on them for that to happen. Then there's this contraton with Simon the Magician, uh, which is a wonderful thing about take, taking the gospel out rather than just sitting in our churches and preaching it. Now, I know that I'm sure in your church, as in mine, there's lot, all sorts of people who come in um, and create interesting you know, events and conversations and disruptions and all the rest of it, and that's what we want. But of course, taking the gospel out and about means that this sort of thing is much more likely. So there's this magician who tries to buy the power um, uh, Peter has very harsh words for him <laughs> because Peter has gone down to join Philip very harsh words for him so this is all going on uh, more witnessing in more places we read about the gospel just keeps being preached more and more and then we find witnessing through scripture so the famous event which brings to the, uh, us to the end of this uh, section of scripture is Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch so if you're familiar, uh, familiar with the story, uh, Philip is told by God to go to a certain place, doesn't know why, but he goes, and he hears this guy reading the scripture, the Hebrew scriptures, because that's the only scripture there is at that point, right? Um, uh, out loud, presumably. And so Philip goes and says, do you, do you need some help with that? Uh, and so, uh, as you know, there's a conversion of the uh, eunuch, Immediately, again, he gets baptised. Um, what's to stop me, he says, in fact. I've, yeah, so he clearly puts his faith in Christ. So he says to Philip, well, what's to stop me getting baptised here and now? Philip obviously doesn't think there is anything. So he baptises him. And, and we have this... Uh, there's a hint here, isn't there, of the ends of the earth. So although we saw in our scheme at the beginning from Acts 1.8, the ends of the earth is going to we're going to push out through the book of Acts and then of course at the end of the book of Acts for the rest of history um, but here we may only be as far as Samaria but there's an Ethiopian who's come to Samaria and so he's going to go home back to Ethiopia and of course Ethiopia is one of the places with the oldest churches um, in the world isn't it so which makes a, a, a makes a mockery of the idea that Westerners took the gospel to Africa but anyway, uh, that's for another day. Uh, so there's this conversion and baptism, and then there's what I call the Star Trek ending, where Philip just seems to be beamed to somewhere else. It, it, see, it reads like that. Whether it actually is like that, I don't know. But um, So they, went, they came up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch didn't see him anymore, and then he appeared in another place. That's the Star Trek ending. Very exciting as well, but... So here's a question. Um, you don't know the answer to this, by the way. <laughs> I'm guessing. Well, if you do, you could tell me. That'd be helpful. But some some people say that you know this this uh, there's a little bit of a um, a tip. It's like a, a, a f um, you know a first payment, if you like, a, a little bit of a deposit on the whole ends of the earth scheme. Is that the Ethiopian has come and heard the gospel? Um, just have we've only got a few minutes left of this session but um okay let's do this all together let's not do it in, in on your tables but 
are there things about this particular conversion, this particular person meeting with Christ through the ministry of Philip that would have been surprising to the original hearers, do you think? Um, what's the significance of some of the things? I mean, I've already said one of them, but um, that's hap just happened to this guy. Any thoughts? If not, I'll tell you. Well, he's on his own. He's on his he's own. Going to help right. Growing his faith. Yeah. And okay. Then you've got the Old Testament scriptures. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he's going back to Ethiopia, having a very small understanding, and he's gonna. Yeah. That's a good. That's a good question. Yeah. He's a Gentile, so Philip, as a Jew, what's he doing? Going okay. Having a chat to a Gentile. Yeah. So that's a big question. Is he a Gentile? Because lots of people would say he must be a proselyte Jew, a converted, converted to Judaism. I mean, we don't know. This is what I mean. I don't, we don't know the answer necessarily to this. But if he's a Gentile, then what's the big fuss about Acts 10 with the sheet? You know, Peter sees this vision of the sheet and God says, don't call anything I've made unclean. And he goes to Cornelius' house and he can't believe the Gentiles receive the spirit, but they do. And so, boof, off we go. And so some would, some would say, well, if the Ethiopian is a Gentile, then what's all the fuss? Why is that big, uh, such a big deal in Acts 10? But we don't know, because um, he, he could. And he was reading the, what's he doing reading Isaiah, if he's not a convert to Judaism or Jew of the diaspora, you know, sort of distributed all around the nations, there are Jews. Um, yeah, we don't know, that's a question. He's recognised the one God anyway. That yeah, right. So he's, for some reason he's reading the Hebrew Scriptures Yeah, in his chariot. Um, I have never stopped someone who's reading the Scriptures on the... Because a lot of people read the Bible on the tube in London. I don't know about here, but you see people on the bus or whatever. But, but I've never, <laughs> never gone up to someone and said, you need any help with that? Yeah. <laughs> you kind of assume that they know what they're doing if they're reading the Bible, but maybe we should. Maybe we should be more bold. I don't know. Um... So even if he's a Jew, actually, he's still an outsider because he's a eunuch. So he's not circumcised, he's castrated. So he's not allowed into the... He's only allowed so far in the temple, uh, outside the, the courts of the temple. There's something about a bringing near of the outsider, the nations. So, so there's potentially all sorts of reasons why, uh, again... When we, when we get to, sorry, I'm jumping ahead, you haven't done it yet. When we get to later on in Acts with, um, when Peter hears from God and goes to meet Cornelius in his household, um, there's, they're absolutely amazed. Peter's absolutely amazed that, oh, this is for the Gentiles as well. I mean, you'd think, we, you know, that's where we're going with this. But, you know, it's such a revelation to him. It seems so extraordinary that God would choose without thankfully without Peter having to do anything about it it becomes clear to him that they have received the spirit and therefore you know God has God has shown that they're to be brought in but here there's a little taste of it in Acts 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch one he's from far away the ends of the earth if you like you know he's from far um, two he's a eunuch a three again we don't know if he's a Jew or not so unfortunately Luke doesn't tell us you sometimes wish they'd tell you these things don't you um but again, it's just a little, it's a little reminder of, our, of the pattern of what Luke has given us in the Acts of the Apostles. You know. Jesus says this right at the beginning in Acts 1-8 before he ascends. And then we just watch it 
Who knew what Jesus said would come about? You know, we'll watch it unfold as the ripples go by. Go. This is my. This is the ripples picture. This is a good analogy. I love this. And of course, um, from from this point, and as I've said, I think the. Uh, the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Rome through the Acts of the Apostles. That's 1,400 miles. It's quite a long way in those days. I mean, it's quite a long way now, but, you know, it, it, it's, it's travelled this distance as we read through the Acts of the Apostles and watch the ripples spread. And from there, of course, and even now, the ripples are still spreading. Um, it's why, if we think about... I don't know, it's why it's a great thing if you give money to charitable causes or to Christian ministries. It's a great thing to think about um, Bible translations, you know, languages that have not yet had the Bible translators. I looked this up yesterday. The YouVersion app, you know, the Bible thing on your phone, which lots of you probably use, is in 1,866 languages. That's amazing. I mean, that's only a fraction of the number of languages that actually have the Bible. There, I think the latest stat I could find says the Bible is translated in whole or in part to 3,324 languages currently. But there are over 7,000 living languages in the world. And so the ripples are still going and there's still more to do because there are still people groups that are unreached and there are still languages that don't have the Bible. However... The exciting thing is that from where, we, where this started, you know, up there in Israel and then across to um, Turkey and those kind of places, this is now the latest statistics about Christianity in the world. The ripples, you just you know, see the extraordinary uh, continuation. We get to the end of Acts and it's very much a to-be-continued story, isn't it? So this comes from the Centre for Global Christianity, which is at Gordon-Conwell University in America, or seminary. Um, let, very up-to-date stats on, if you're interested in that sort of thing, look up the Centre for Global Christianity. Uh, they've got stuff on YouTube as well as uh, on their website. Very, very interesting. And as we can see, you know, this is now, Christianity is a, 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 um, a religion of the global south, very much, as I'm sure many of you know. Uh, the shift over the last hundred years or so has been extraordinary um, uh, but look at that the ripples that went out from that little from where we start there in Jerusalem as we've just read and we've seen it go a little bit and we're to the Ethiopian eunuch who's in Samaria that's as far as we've got in the story today but man it's just you know God's purposes for the all the nations every nation language tribe and tongue to be uh, brought into the good news of the gospel for that new spirit-born community that we've just watched come to birth through the pages of our Bible has been growing and growing and growing, continues to grow, thank God, praise God, uh, in all these places. Just extraordinary. Uh, 2.4 billion people or thereabouts claim to follow Christ. So... The ripples continue and we all have our part to play in that as that stone was lobbed into the water uh, in Jerusalem uh, back at the beginning of Acts 1. So that's that, that's Acts 1 to 8, is that okay? You all still alright? Doing okay? Good, still awake, which is always nice for me. Okay, we're going to have... Uh, time is flying, no? That was 40 minutes of, uh, of that, okay. So we're going to have a little break... Um, Time for, yeah, coffee in the loo, and then we'll come back and we'll start the next session, which is basically looking at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Um, 
who we've just seen in action a lot, and we're going to look at him, who he is and what he does a little bit more together. Okay? Ten minutes, Tom? Ten minutes, please.